You're listening to Potluck, the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people, culture, and brands in Asia. Hosted, as always, by Scott and Drago. Continuing our conversation with Katie Drake in our next segment, Hacking Humans. No, we're not murdering people here. <laughs> we're looking at the role of insight, understanding humans, culture, and psychology and how all of that plays a role in business decision-making. Katie, what is your best advice for those who want to get a better understanding of people, what makes people tick, and the role that culture plays in that? I, I love doing consumer research. Um, it often started in my background from the advertising side, which sometimes when done very poorly is really more about please get someone to substantiate the work I want to do. <laughs> but when yeah, done remarkably, there. yeah, yeah, I'm sure we've all sent, seen a little bit of this. Um, but when done really well, can feel like science in the best uh, sense. And and not, not science like laboratory science, um, beakers and, um, you know, crucibles, but more like um, archaeology and anthropology and a little bit of Indiana Jonesing, I guess, like just kind of getting under the skin of stuff and understanding why things are the way they are. And it feels like the most important tool to do is the first tool is the, is the editing tool, which is to put your biases to the best of your ability and what you think you know and remove it from the equation as quickly as possible. And if you're working with a team or when I'm working with a team, I usually try to have like a pre-research session where we basically sit around and we say, what do we think we're going to find out? What do we think we're seeing here before we talk to anybody, before we get under the hood? Because we need to acknowledge that we, because of the way our brains work, it's the way we're wired, we're going to come in with something already preceded. And we need to, if we can't extract it all the way out of our psyches, we got to at least identify it and pin it to the Mm. map. But then from there, I actually like to use, and you know, this sort of like, you're going to learn this about me, like this bending of time as a, as like a, as a, as a method or like a mode to say, okay, I'm going to pretend now that I'm interacting with this subject group, this cohort or this culture for the very first time. I've never seen it before. And I'm studying it like an anthropologist, potentially someone from a long distant future who's studying like an extinct city or culture? What is it that I'm seeing? What are the artifacts that have been left behind by this group? What do they make? What do they write? What do they manifest in terms of art, um, in terms of um, sharing of, you know, the mind and the heart? And then try to figure out what does it mean? And and what is what are some of the crossroads and constructs that are kind of pinging along underneath the surface that create these manifestations on the top of the water. And so by identifying, you know, what's, what's on top, then you can kind of go underneath to figure out like, you know, like a river, if there's a bunch of swirls and things on the top, it means there's a stone underneath, you know, there's something, there's a structure there. What is that structure and how long has that structure been in place? And even doing some, um, mind experiments of like, what happens if we remove that structure? Does the culture radically change? Does it fall apart? Does it, you know, collapse in on itself? Does it expand and evolve? Um, so I like to play. 
as much as you know time and budget allows <laughs> but to and to also respect each cohort even if it, i mean i'm sure just like the both of you guys like i've worked with all these different slices of people in college i took this this course called um what was it called oh god i'm gonna forget it now uh, cultured communication. And I, so I thought, oh, we're going to study how different people around the world talk to each other. This is going to be really interesting. But actually what we studied was um, deadheads, like Grateful Dead fans. We studied Vietnam vets. We studied sorority girls and fraternity mm. boys. Basically, we studied subcultures. Mm. And I learned so much in that class that there's things that you can do with handshakes and ways of a certain lingua franca, like you use that word, I use that word, that means we're in the same tribe. You know, all these different sort of like semiotics of belonging. Mm. So if you apply that also to the world of marketing, I realize, oh, wow, when I used to work on Western Union, their whole service was for the unbanked. It was largely the diaspora of developing countries to developed countries. Mm -hmm. And they are, I, I am not that person. And so I need to work two, three times as hard to understand what does it mean to leave your home? And in some cases, remove yourself from your family and your children and put yourself in a foreign environment where you're going to be working in your second language, probably at a level below your education, just because it, you've now placed yourself in such a difficult situation, mm. but you're doing it for something, for a future that is better for you, for your family. Maybe even you won't see it in your own lifetime. Like these people who I, I couldn't understand, I didn't know anyone by name in my personal life, became almost like superheroes to me. This is brilliant. I, I love your um, approach of kind of carbon dating of, of, of culture, if you will. <laughs> Let, let's talk um, about how that, how that approach, Katie, has translated into some of the amazing work uh, you've been involved in. So uh, one of the more recent uh, initiatives you kind of uh, you know, had, a, had a major role in was the Nike membership um, program and, and I think something Drago and I noticed doing some prep for this interview is that it struck us that you speak a lot about the power of community a lot but maybe less so on the individual itself so we kind of wondered first of all why is that and what's the relevance of this thinking to how you kind of approach the sort of membership um, you know Nike membership as, a, as an initiative to engage with people yeah um, membership is an is an interesting space right now communities being a lot of a lot of especially brands that are attempting to make a pivot into a deeper dtc style business model yeah. that only really succeeds if you're able to retain and you need a mechanism for retention a way for you to have um intelligence collection that sounds really sterile but basically getting to know your customers better and better <laughs> over time yeah. and create a relationship and maintain that relationship and that involves some data and that involves respecting that data and um, and also surfacing back to people an understanding that yes we the brand see you we see you accurately we see you respectfully and um, we look at this as not a one-time purchase and out but we see this as like a relationship over time so we're thinking of you in terms of li like your lifetime and your a bigger life cycle than just path to purchase so let's look at this space and Nike um, entered into this maybe a little bit later than others would have. Um, and we kind of experimented with it in a number of different ways um, over time. And it wasn't really until maybe the last 
three years when Nike made a wholehearted shift into DTC that um, membership had a a spotlight back on it again and was getting um, a lot of leadership attention and proper funding and and team development. And so we could hire some experts from outside of Nike to come in from other industries where they could bring their knowledge and help develop a world-class membership program. For the brand of Nike, it was an interesting question as well because people... um, are very attracted to the Nike brand for lots of different Mm -hmm. reasons, but some of it is it's swagger. Some of it, it's sort of big bombastic, just do it heritage in more modern times, as you know, like, and by modern times, I'm meaning what the last 30 seconds. No, it's more like, (laughs) it's more like, I don't know, the last 10 years, perhaps um, with digital democratizing so many aspects of our lives that anyone can make a movie and anyone can record an album and, Suddenly people are taking their eyes from maybe the top of the mountain and starting to cast them maybe more in the middle space. Like uh, I aspirationally um, excited by and interested in people who are one or two arms lengths away. If you think about like, instead of looking to LeBron James, I'm looking to uh, a college basketball player or even a high school basketball player or Mm. someone in my community who I know is really great. And I now know who those people are because social media has surfaced them to me. I can follow them. I can understand them in a way that it's difficult to understand an elite athlete who has millions of dollars and people to help them be amazing all the time. So there's this interesting balance in a brand like Nike and like others that operate in a similar space where you want to have a sense of community where you know you're joining something. You want to be there with many. I mean, Nike's a massive brand with teams around the world. I would expect if I were to join a Nike and then join the Nike brand, that there would be people from around the world in this community. Mm -hmm. And I might even be able to interact with them or even um, create missions with them and try to make the world of sport even better. And so there's this, there's a we component, but then there's also that individual component and that's where the brand speaks to you Drago, Scott, as an individual and says, I see that you're a runner or I see that you train a lot or you've been collecting a lot of shoes on sneaker and we can start to understand you as an individual Mm -hmm. and make sure that the experience you're having with the brand through content that's for members only or through product that will soon be for members only and all these other experiences that you're getting value out of that relationship that is um, tangible we talk, we talk a lot, a lot of touchy feely words about <laughs> communities and being there with other people and feeling t- the sense of, you know, humanity, but people want discounts. People want hard, cold value if you're selling something that is desirable. And so mm. there is a, a responsibility to the bottom line and a responsibility to the brand mm. and all of those things. So it's really about those. I, we were trying to figure out the communication structure for this making sure that our elite athletes were talking about joining Nike membership and being a part of our family with us. We didn't have, we made specific choices around language, for example, of instead of log in and um, create a profile, we said, join us. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a, there's a strap line of this is where all athletes belong. And we wanted to show everyday athletes like you or I also with elite athletes to show that when we say this is where all athletes belong. We really mean all athletes. Mm. And then it's those micro interactions. That's where it puts a lot of pressure on the digital product. So that when I'm using the app, 
and the app is on my private my mobile phone and only I use it, that it recognizes my, essentially my remote control device for my relationship with this brand now reflects mm-hmm. me as an individual. It knows what services I've signed up for, which things I've scheduled, which events I'm going to, which products I've purchased, all of that stuff with, with a sprinkling of the greater um, entity woven throughout so it doesn't feel like just an echo chamber of your own self. And another another business trend pulling pulling back from this, we noticed this taps into is is obviously the kind of recurring revenue subscription model. I, I think the the, mm. the rundle, as, as as Scott Galloway <laughs> is sort of crudely and admittedly crudely called it. Um, and what we wonder is, do, do you see that as as increasingly the way of the future? For I mean, obviously we're seeing tech companies, Apple, Microsoft, etc., being the kind of uh, making major shifts there, or perhaps Microsoft led the way. Uh, but do you see that as the way of the future for brands more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, if your company is focused on a service or a product that is naturally repetitive in some way, well, then you better be thinking about this already. Like this, it would be silly if you weren't. You know, with 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 Nike, for example, we could see that people were shopping on Nike.com approximately, what was it, 1.2, 1.3 times a year. You know, and how many times do you spend $200 on a pair of shoes a year? Maybe it's a Maybe it's once, maybe if you're a collector, it's much more than that. But I mean, there's only so many pairs of shoes you can buy. You only have two feet. Like, <laughs> so like, so we had to have a, a, a responsible sort of retention conversation about the product that makes sense. We can't be telling you to go out and buy a new pair of shoes every day. That's ridiculous. But we can talk to you about sport every day. We can inspire you to work out every day. We can um, excite you about the future of sport or the different personalities, or if it's an Olympics year, there's a lot to talk about. And so you kind of build a foundation around what the product is and the, the, the realities of how many can you make and how many can you sell and how many can people possibly actually need in their life realistically. That sets a cadence. And then on top of that, what else can we talk to people about? Because if we can't talk to them about anything else, we can't really create a relationship. We've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm going to a dinner party and the guy only wants to talk about one thing who's sitting next to you at the table and you're like, oh no, <laughs> this is going to be a really long dinner. Um, we have got nothing to connect on. <laughs> and so you're just looking for ways to connect. Um, and so if you are Uber and people are using your service every day to get to and from work, I would expect that the communication cadence that goes along with that is pretty rapid and would have a pretty fast metabolism. But if it's you're about buying a car, there's other things you need to talk to people about. And so that's where I think the service layer comes into play as a really important um, experiential component that you can create anticipation for, take someone through, have a halo effect afterwards, get them back into a next one. But the other underlying positive about services is just the new corner we're finally, finally turning into where more and more companies are focused on um, their impact on planet. And so if you are a a company that actually makes hard objects that can't be composted, which is most of what's out there right now, Mm. You need to be thinking about how you can continue to make money, but actually sell less 
make less damage on the planet, but maintain your bottom line. And so if you get to a point where you can establish a value layer inside of your company that people are willing to subscribe for or pay into, you've now paid your own business model to put less shit in the world, to say it bluntly. And that's a great business model for where the world is going. Fantastic. Next, I'd like to talk about something else that you were involved in very recently, the new Nike maternity line. Nike launched uh, just last year, I think it was September. Uh, so um, to us, it feels like this maternity line is even a bit more of a leap for Nike than the Kaepernick move back in the day. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the birth of the idea and uh, uh, what your take is on you know, where in the Nike pantheon of great cultural hacks you, you think this idea sits? Yeah, I, I hope it's not too radical. It shouldn't be ra too radical for a sports hmm. brand to take care of 50% <laughs> of the population um, when they're going through one of the most strenuous physical experiences one could hope to have. Um, I am merely one of the latecomers into the maternity work that had been percolating inside of the business for a number of years. Um, I uh, was um, reorged into the, the Nike women part of the business uh, last year, 2020, at the very opening of the year, and we launched in September. So I was there for like the, the the launch planning and the acceleration into marketplace. And so I was the lucky recipient of a lot of other people's work. Um, the fascinating thing about it from, from my point of view is Nike did a lot of things really, really right here, mm. but it wasn't part of the um, the machine. It wasn't part of the standard operating procedure. It was It was a lot of very passionate mothers who felt very strongly about this work and who kept it alive even when there was every other reason to take their eyes off the ball for, you know, financial reasons or other things. Second, we actually put this product through the NSRL, which is the Nike Sports Research Lab, on pregnant athletes' bodies and tested it the same we would some something that someone was going to do a performance sport in. Mm. Um, and... I'm really proud of the team that managed to get that time in the lab and to really protect that time and make sure that the product had that story when it came to launch. Because it just showed that we, we the team that was collectively doing this as, you know, uh, as, a, as a, a cohort internally who really believed in it, wanted to do it right. Um, lastly, what I think that was really fascinating, and this is going to come up, I think, more and more, particularly in the brand space, is it says something about what Nike believes about sport, mm. if you have a body, you're an athlete, and about the women's uh, moment in sport that we're in right now, that it deserves uh, just as much innovation and needs potentially even more innovation than what we've ever done for the male athlete's body. Mm. What that led to from a comms point of view is a lot of great uh, co internal conversation that needed to happen before we could go public. Are we supporting our internal Nike women as much as we'd like to shout about the mountaintops when we launch this product? Do our Nike mothers feel supported here? Have we done enough in the gym? Have we done enough um, to help mothers who are 
um, nursing their children, you know, have a safe place and a quiet space to pump milk during the day. Like all of these really vibrant and important conversations that maybe would get handled at some point, you know, maybe we were going to do the right thing someday, but it was the product. We were so proud of the product. The product was going to go to market. We needed to know that we felt good about how things were. And so it, it kicked up a ton of great initiatives and, and new leadership teams that are now like focused on solving some, some key uh, topics that were raised. I think this is going to happen more and more as we're starting to s- shift away from the stockholder mentality to the stakeholder mentality, because mm-hmm. one of the most critical stakeholders in any brand is the employees who believe and so if you've got, in this case, you know, an, a small army of women who believe very passionately that this is that these are important products and women athletes deserve these products, those are the stakeholders that Nike, the brand, also needs to uh, feel ownership of and responsibility to before we ever go out to public. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hearing this topic actually come up a lot more around other brands as well. It's something you mentioned earlier too about the importance of brands to put their money where their mouth is, yeah? You mentioned the climate. Um, But what, uh, uh, in addition to climate, what is the next frontier you think for a a global brand? You've worked, you know, for and with a number of different global brands. You know, uh, let's not get into the P word, you know, talk about purpose now, but you know, what should a global (laughs) brand be hacking in a way that kind of brings culture, brand, and product together in a meaningful way. I, I, I guess there's a long list. When we talk about motherhood, we ultimately talk about gender too. There's there's race, there's age, and we're just talking. We're only talking about the the demographics here, yeah. We, yeah. So, what is the next frontier? You think? Yeah. Well, I I think it probably could be several things, but I think the one that kind of ties back to our earlier conversation about membership is with with technology changing the way businesses are running and more and more companies choosing the DTC business models, even if it's a blend, you know, recognizing that the DTC side of the business will always be more cost efficient and will drive a lot of um, speed. Uh, with that retention muscle that's built, and the membership that if, if done well and infused with the right amount of humanity and brand, that is a very powerful, always on focus group for a company. Um, I was talking to a company the other day that says they have 90 million members in their community, but they weren't quite sure what to do <laughs> with, with these 90 million members. And we had a really lively discussion. You know, it's like, well, you could work with them to figure out what your next products are going to make. If you have 90 million people, I bet there's at least 10, 10 million that agree about something. Mm-hmm. If you got them to even prepay for that something, you could make them and you would have no wastage. You know, you'd be making it just to the size of the market. You have a, a member marketplace, if you will, of people, shoppers, uh, aficionados who you know quite a bit about um, and who are actually a very um, a, a higher a high percentage yield <laughs> to get kind of grossly technical there for a second in terms of you know having to buy a television ad and hope that people see it and hope that they have a positive 
uh, feeling once they have seen it and hope that at some point in the next six months, they might need to buy what you make and then hope that they choose to come to you as to one of the wholesale partners you sell through, because if they come to you, it's, you know, like just all of that starts to kind of, um, uh, steamroll or what is it? Snowball into a, a very sort of like positive cyclical cycle. So, um, I think right now, membership and communities maybe are, are just, just at the very beginning of discovering their magic. Mm. They've been kind of used as a blunt instrument over the last, I don't know, 40 years when they were on paper. And then in the last 10 or 20 years, when we've started to digitize, you know, clienteling essentially as a, as a blunt instrument for revenue, but what a brand you know, a, a, a lifestyle brand, the size of like an Apple or a Nike or, or some, someone else, an H and M perhaps what, if you've got these millions of people who are here and eager, what can you do together? You can create change. I mean, like nations, like, like some of these some of these communities are bigger than countries. <laughs> I mean, if you start to get a little, you could start to get a little like, whoa, hang on, what are we talking about here? You know, obviously we want to do altruistic things in the world, but if if it's easy to do Nike because I've just spent so much time there, but like if you're living in the world of sport and you believe that sport moves the world forward, okay, what are we going to do together to move the world forward? And it's not the brand dictating what those things are. We're the broker. It's actually the people, it's the masses who can move the world forward. And so I think there's something there that we're just at the beginning of being able to harness. Um, it's really exciting to think about what could be done. We've witnessed so much over the last couple of years with how high schoolers in the United States have gone against, you know, um, legislation protecting the NRA and protecting guns, mm -hmm. really fighting for their own, literally their own lives and the ability to go to school safely. And they've changed legislation in the United States. We've seen what's happened with youth again, marching for the, um, for the planet. The next cohort of people coming up generationally are very empowered. They expect the brands who have platforms and powerful relationships and deep pockets to behave that way and to, and to be a part of it. So I think there's something kind of bubbling there. Mm. I haven't, I haven't necessarily seen it, you know, harnessed all the way yet. I start yeah. to see Patagonia do it a little bit, getting people to, you know, put some skin in the game and get outside and, 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 participate in the protection of nature, but I think there's more to be seen. Okay. 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 Amazing. So we've been stirring the pot with Katie. This is the end of part two. Uh, tune in for our short and sweet third segment we call Brand Burns. Ouch. Mm -hmm.